It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 357 for August 25th, 2013. This week, don't look now, but your phone or tablet might be sharing information you don't want to share. Three years ago, I wondered why anyone would want a color ebook reader. This year, I wonder if anyone can find a monochrome book reader. In short circuits, Facebook's founder wants to spread wireless internet access worldwide. YouTube releases a new version of its app for Apple and Android devices. A big battery on your iPhone can double as a wimpy taser. And Netflix gains exclusive access to Weinstein films but not until 2014. I suppose I should mention that Steve Ballmer is retiring as CEO of Microsoft and that the NASDAQ had a big crash this week. So there you go. I've mentioned him. Security experts have long expressed concern about portable devices, the stuff we carry around with us. And this is true whether the device is an iPhone, an Android device, an iPad, or a Windows-based tablet. If it connects via Wi-Fi, it's on somebody's radar. Both the good guy's radar and the bad guy's radar. Everybody likes ease of use. Everybody likes convenience. But everybody also likes to keep their proprietary data from falling into the hands of competitors. The problem is that ease of use and convenience both suffer as more stringent security measures are put in place, and security suffers as ease of use and convenience are given precedence. So there's no one-size-fits-all solution, and the cost of security, both monetary cost and the lack of convenience and ease of use, have to be balanced with the risk. There are very definite threats out there. Mobile computing devices can store huge amounts of data. Thumb drives, for example, can hold 64 gigabytes of data, and those small devices are readily available for 30 bucks or less. Assuming a typewritten page contains about 2,000 text characters, a 64 gigabyte storage device could hold approximately 33,554,432 pages, and that device would easily fit in a pocket. In fact, you could carry several, and nobody would even notice. These portable devices are often unprotected, and when coupled with the fact that they're easy to lose, and yes, I have lost some, and also easy to steal, the threat's pretty clear. But thumb drives are old technology. For a data thief to use such a device to get the data off it, the thief has to physically possess the device. It's a lot easier just to grab data out of the air and then to use that information to gain access to protected resources. Phones and tablets actually represent a double threat because they usually come with a large amount of built-in memory and they can communicate wirelessly over non-secure networks. So thieves have two opportunities. If they can't steal the physical device, then they can steal the data as long as it's being transmitted to an open Wi-Fi hotspot. Check the graphic you'll find on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It shows the results of some research by the Internet Security Specialist WebRoot. It's a scary graphic. It doesn't really have to be scary, though. 
For thumb drives and the memory and other portable devices, encryption is a good idea. When devices are encrypted, the data contained on them is at least more difficult to extract. That's not to say impossible, because somebody with sufficient computing resources and a strong enough need to know what's on the device will probably be able to break the encryption. But it's enough to thwart run-of-the-mill desperados. As for eliminating the over-the-air threat, that is so easy that I'm surprised when I learn somebody isn't doing it. Virtual private network software can encrypt data when it's in the air between your device and an open Wi-Fi hotspot. Regardless of the type of portable device you use, you'll find a variety of VPN products and services that are available. If you're protecting an Apple phone or tablet, you should obtain the app from the iTunes Store. For Android devices, download the app from Google Play or the Amazon App Store. While this won't absolutely guarantee that the app isn't malware, it does at least provide some assurance that it has been validated. Windows 8 users will also find apps for their computers and tablets in the Windows Store. VPN applications require little or no technical knowledge to install and use. In fact, if you know how to download and install an app, which is essentially an automatic function on smartphones and tablets, and if you can create an account using your email address and a password, then you already know how to set up most VPN apps. Many of the services provide the VPN without charge for limited use, or for a limited time. If you spend a lot of time online via Wi-Fi, you're probably going to want to pay a few dollars a year for the service and get unlimited data transfer. Given the amount of protection that VPN provides, the small annual fee is well worth the cost. Here's one real-life example with one real-life service, one that I found recently and decided to sign up for. I've tried several VPN services over the years. Most of them are relatively easy to install and set up. Most of them offer adequate bandwidth for the occasional user. But now I've found the first VPN service that is so quick, so easy, and so full-featured that I decided to go beyond the basic free plan and pay for unlimited bandwidth. Now, this might, in part, be the result of my owning several devices that can connect via Wi-Fi, and the fact that three of those devices are highly portable, and therefore they're pretty likely to be used via Wi-Fi. When the only Wi-Fi device I owned was a notebook computer, and I spent very little time lugging it around, the free services really were adequate. But part of the reason I decided to pay for the service is the fact that it works so well, works so transparently, and covers five devices for a little more than $4 a month. Those who want to add VPN to a single device can do so for about $2.50 a month. Now, both of those are based on paying a full year's service in advance. If you go with month-to-month -month rates, you'll pay $5 a month for five devices and $3 a month for one. The service is called Surf Easy. When you start the app, you can allow it to optimize your location or pick a specific location. If you select a non-U.S. location, you'll probably still appear to be in the United States, but nowhere near your actual location. For example, I used the optimized setting and SurfEasy told me that my web traffic would appear to be coming from Virginia. 
Herndon, Virginia, I assume, because that's the site of a gigantic internet hub. I'm less interested, though, in obfuscating my location, more interested in simply encrypting information that I send over the Wi-Fi connection. Sending login IDs and passwords in the clear is never a good idea. After trying the free service for a while, just two days in my case, and you're ready to sign up for an account, it's really easy. Just click the Upgrade button and you'll be connected to the Play Store. And in a few moments, you'll have an active account, good for either one or five computers. If you have an iPhone, you'll need to connect to the iTunes Store. Because SurfEasy works for all types of computers and mobile devices, you can sign up on the company's website and download versions for a Windows computer or a Mac computer. You'll find more information on the SurfEasy website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. But that's not all you can do. There are lots of other good ideas. For example, label portable devices with your name and a phone number. You might be surprised how many people actually attempt to return things they find. But they can't do that if there's no way to identify the owner. Many phones and tablets do have a screen that can identify the owner, but if the device's battery is dead, that's not going to work. A label is inexpensive, and it's a really good idea. Also, password protect the device. That should be evident, but a surprising number of people carry around devices that have no passwords and also aren't encrypted. Set a timeout on the device so it'll automatically turn itself off and lock when it's not in use, or if you just absentmindedly walk away from it. Run updates frequently, or better still, allow the device to update the operating system and all apps automatically. Updates are sometimes designed to provide new features, but most updates simply address security flaws, and you shouldn't skip them. When you're downloading apps, choose to download them from official sources. For example, the Apple iTunes Store, or Google Play, or the Amazon App Store, or the Windows App Store. Malware can be distributed via these official channels, and it has been. But the likelihood is reduced considerably because the storekeepers vet applications before allowing them to appear. Apple's process is generally considered to be the strongest of the bunch, but all of the stores do some checking. There are services that will attempt to find your mobile device if it's lost or stolen. The service can report the device's approximate location and also might be able to engage the onboard camera to take a picture of the current user. Various services exist to do this, and some are specific to various types of devices. You can also use hardware encryption if the device supports it. Sometimes encryption can be used in conjunction with that device finder software I mentioned, and if you can't get your device back, you can at least delete any data that's on it. And for thumb drives... Well, any device that's used to store sensitive data should be encrypted. Although software encryption such as TrueCrypt is free and easy to use, if you want a real easy solution and don't mind paying for it, try a flash drive that's self-encrypting. These are a lot more expensive than standard thumb drives. Instead of 30 bucks or less for 64 gigabytes, you'll probably pay $125 for 16 gigabytes. But devices such as the Apricorn Aegis Secure Key are smart enough to destroy data that's on the key if it determines it's being attacked. The bottom line here is pretty simple. Being careful, using reasonable security practices, and adding applications that protect your privacy won't guarantee that you'll never be victimized by data poachers, but you'll make your data a much less attractive target. And the harder you make a thief work, 
the more likely it is the thief will forego your data and attack some other person's softer target data. About three years ago, I asked if color screens were really necessary on ebook readers. At the time, monochrome was the standard, and color screens were relatively low resolution, not easy to see in bright light, and overpriced. And what a difference three years have made. Amazon still has the monochrome Kindle, the paper white, at 120 bucks, but the Fire and Fire HD are color. Barnes & Noble recently dropped its Color Nook reader, and now it offers just the $80 Simple Touch, which is monochrome. Now, there's no question that monochrome is absolutely the best choice for books, except when it isn't. And most of the time, these days, it isn't. Magazines extensively use color. Many books have color illustrations, or they use color for headlines and callouts and other things graphically. Today's color screens don't drain batteries in minutes. They're readable in sunlight, or at least more readable than they used to be. They have the same resolution, or in many cases, better resolution than the older monochrome devices. And the price difference isn't as great as it once was. So why did Barnes & Noble drop its color version? And why will Amazon probably do the same? I think it has to do with the small and medium tablets we're seeing pop up all over the place. These can be used with the Kindle app, the Nook app, the Kobo app, or Calibra to read books. But they can also serve hundreds of other functions via various apps. There's a parallel here. In the late 1970s, Apple released the Apple II, and the world changed. Instead of computers that could do just one job, these little Apple IIs were the first multi-purpose computers. They could perform any task that somebody could write software for. That's what's happening with the book reader market today. Why buy a reader when, for not much more, maybe 50 or or $100 at the most, you can have a device that will do much, much more? Three years ago, I said I didn't quite see the advantage of color for most of what I read. Fiction and non-fiction books that, if they had pictures, would have them in black and white. Text on a color screen, I said, would be less crisp and clear than monochrome text because of the way RGB displays work. So for me, color wasn't a big deal. Three years ago. Things have changed in the past three years. I may have mentioned that a time or two already. Today I still have my original monochrome Kindle. I still take it to the gym. But when it comes to reading an ebook that deals with photography or design, I want to see the pictures in color. In 2010, the various color readers had colors that were described as muted. That was being polite. They were muddy. The resolution was poor, battery life was lousy, and they really couldn't be used outside. But my little Nexus 7, the thing I described last week, is turning out to be an excellent choice for reading. So I'm wondering, if I return to this topic three years hence in 2016, what else will change?
In short circuits, sometimes those of us who have high-speed internet service at home forget that a few users who do have internet access are still using dial-up systems, and about one-fifth of U.S. households actually have no internet access at all. Elsewhere on the globe, it's even worse, and Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg says he wants to do something about it. He's formed a group that will work to improve wireless internet access. The group includes the browser company Opera and electronics manufacturers such as Ericsson, Nokia, Qualcomm, and Samsung. Zuckerberg says he considers this to be one of the greatest challenges of his generation. Internet.org, as the group is known, has only a few members, and it could be seen as competition for Google's efforts to expand Internet access in the United States. Expanding the Internet to cover 5 billion more people would provide services that those people could use, certainly, but it would also give Facebook a great opportunity to gain more users, more eyeballs, more people who might be interested in the ads that appear on Facebook. Facebook already has more than 1 billion users, and future growth would seem to depend on expanding the overall user base of the Internet. Internet.org says it has three primary goals, developing new technologies that will lower the price of mobile connectivity, creating the software tools needed to make networks more efficient, and that would additionally lower the cost, and establishing what the group calls sustainable new business models that would convince existing mobile communications businesses to add more mobile internet service. The organization is working to attract additional members from the ranks of tech companies, nonprofits, and higher education. couple of video notes here. Those who watch YouTube videos on Android or Apple phones and tablets have probably noticed that things look a little bit different. YouTube rolled out a new interface for Android starting on the 19th of this month and for Apple devices on the 20th. Users of YouTube on either type of device will eventually receive the update, but if you haven't received it yet and you really want it right now, just head over to the iTunes Store or the Play Store. The primary change is the ability of the new interface to perform a search while a video is playing. You'll need to minimize the playing video, but there's no longer a need to stop the playback operation just to search for something else. The video that's playing will shrink to a small area at the bottom of the screen. That's a small area on a small screen, so it'll be a tiny video. Maybe you might as well just stop it if you really want to see something. Well, anyway, other changes generally improve the search function so that users can schedule their videos in a playlist. And it looks like Netflix is going to add films from the Weinstein Brothers. The Weinstein Company was founded by Bob and Harvey Weinstein in 2005. That was after they left Miramax Films, which is a company they had co-founded in 1979, but by then was owned by Disney. The studio has released films ranging from Michael Moore's Sicko to Inglorious Bastards, from The King's Speech to Zack and Miri Make a Porno, from Jano Unchanged to The Tillman Story. Now these and all the other films by the company will be coming to Netflix streaming service, but not until 2016. 
Netflix already has the rights to show some of the films, but the new agreement includes all films by the studio and by its subsidiary, Dimension Films. Netflix will be able to show the films before their release to pay TV channels, which will make Netflix more competitive. The service already has begun producing some of its own content. But the key point here is the exclusive agreement doesn't take effect until 2016. Netflix has been buying up exclusive rights to lots of existing films, in addition to creating some of its own content, such as Orange is the New Black. CEO Reed Hastings is seeking to increase membership in the company's $8 per month streaming service. The company currently has 30 million U.S. subscribers and nearly 8 million additional subscribers in other countries. Here's something you don't see every day. How about adding a taser to your iPhone? An add-on battery called the Yellow Jacket provides extra power for your iPhone and also powers a relatively low-power taser. Actually, there might be better ways to spend 140 bucks because using the taser would be rather cumbersome in an emergency. You realize you're in an emergency situation and you need a taser. Well, first, you have to remove the safety cover to expose the electrodes on your yellow jacket taser. Then, you flip a switch to turn the device on. And finally, once the device is on and the electrodes are uncovered, you push a button to fire the taser and jam it up against the person. And the taser, reportedly, feels more like a yellow jacket wasp. You know, the little things that land on your arm and sting you without warning. It feels more like that than a real taser. The output is rated at about one-eighth of an amp at 650 kilovolts. That sounds like a lot, and as voltage goes, it is. But the stopping power of a device such as this depends on amperage, and one amp isn't really very much. In other words, the yellow jacket might prove to be more of an irritant than a crime stopper. If you don't own an iPhone 4 or 4S, you're not yet eligible to add a yellow jacket. The developer will soon add models for the iPhone 5, and the Samsung Galaxy S4. Perhaps the Yellow Jacket's best feature is its ability to add a lot of extra talk time. That's because it comes with an 1800 milliamp hour battery. You'll find more information about the Yellow Jacket on the Yellow Jacket website, and there's a link to the Yellow Jacket website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.